Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but it's eat out to help out and nothing is getting in the way of 50% off your favorite pizza joint? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to yet another fact-fueled episode of Journal Spotting. You're going to notice a couple of important changes for this episode, listeners, so bear with us. What with the um, August changeover, exams, and life generally being busier than the first Monday evening of Eat Out to Help Out in your local pub, apologies to any non-UK listeners who have no idea what we're on about, um, we have decided to keep things short, sweet, simple, and tasty. That's right, listeners. Tonight we have a selection of mouth-watering journal bites from the last sort of month or so. I think a few July articles might have squeaked in there. These are going to be quick fire summaries on key articles, which might change your practice or at least your perception on important topics that have been published in the last few months. We're going to cover everything from aspiration pneumonia to cerebral venous thrombosis to the latest antivirals you've never heard of. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, John, you might as well, should we do what we usually do? Do you want to introduce yourself and, I don't know, tell us about the best eat out to help out you've had recently? Thanks, Barney. Uh, my name is Dr. John Hudson. Just... Uh, firstly, just to clarify to non-UK listeners, Eat Out to Help Out is essentially the British government subsidising us eating at restaurants Monday to Wednesday. So uh, the first night it was available for Eat Out to Help Out, I actually called my local Chinese restaurant. Uh, shout out to Lucky and Joy in Clapton, apparently they're listeners. Uh, ordered most of the menu uh, because I thought I had the discount. The waiter informed me of the price and I gleefully replied, and uh what is it with the eat out to help out scheme? You know, the Rishi Sunak initiative, expecting him to basically hand over sort of chili tofu and rice crackers for free, only to be informed that it doesn't apply to delivery. Yeah. Did you know that, Barney? I got stung once, yeah. Oh, not only was I absolutely gutted, but being British, I was way too socially awkward to cancel half <laughs> the order. And I just paid like a completely unreasonable amount of money for Chinese food on a Monday, for one. <laughs> <laughs> Was it just for one as well? <laughs> Mate, a lonely, lonely, gluttonous Chinese evening. Lovely. I'm really embarrassed to reveal how much I paid for, for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could spend that new respiratory registrar paycheck. There we go. Lovely. Um, I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons. And right at the beginning, actually, I went to the pub, the local pub with my, my wife, her parents and our son for dinner. So it was like an early dinner. We sat outside. It was the first, I think it was the first Monday of the scheme. Um, and it actually, yeah, it was really nice. And, and everyone was in good cheer in the pub. And I think this is the first time which has ever happened to me in England. But there's a couple of uh, guys about, about my age sitting on the table next to us. And inexplicably, one of them sort of leant over and said, said, hi, how are you doing? Um, just want to say that you remind me of my grandfather. That's not me, by the way. Pointing at you. Yeah. <laughs> he was pointing at my wife's dad. And he said something about drinks or something. We're like, oh, no, no, it's fine, 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 thank you. And then look, Weeds came along with four beers. And considering that my wife is pregnant, my son is too, so clearly doesn't drink. Um, my wife's mum, like, doesn't drink at all. And so there, yeah, we sat there with four free beers um, just because my wife's dad looked like some guy's granddad, which I thought was really nice. And listen, it's just a bit, this is London. This, this never happens. I mean, like, 
never happens. Yeah, we said thank you and off he went. Yeah, also pints are not half, it doesn't apply to pints, which I made that mistake as well. Turns out, eat out to help out. They weren't on the deal either. Yeah, don't try and think you're getting 50% off beers. Nightmare. Nightmare, well, there we go. It's been lovely though. I've enjoyed having a 50% off the occasional meal, so all good. Um, Right, we should probably crack on with the show. Enough of our random anecdotes. As always, listeners, we'd love to hear your feedback on anything and everything related to the show. Um, also don't forget to check out our website with all the funky graphics that our Picasso of the podcast Costa has created so um, go and check them out okay sweet Barney Uh, do you want to kick us off with the first uh, journal bite will indeed right so first one prediction of cerebral venous thrombosis that's CTV with a clinical score and D-dimer levels this was uh, released in the American Academy of Neurology so as most medics will be able to tell you Diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis can be really difficult. They can present as thunderclap headaches or more insidiously over hours or days with or without neurological signs. And a large proportion will have a normal plain CT. But we need to be thinking about it. So this was a prospective study of 359 suspected CVTs. And amongst those, they found a prevalence of around 25%. So if you're suspecting it, actually, it's not that uncommon that it actually occurs. They analyzed their symptoms and signs and included a D-dimer to create a scoring system. So just to rattle through this, seizures at presentation was four points. Known thrombophilia, four points. If they're on neural contraception, two points. Duration of symptoms more than six days, two points. Worst headache ever, one point. Focal neurological deficit at presentation, one point. And if you're including the D-dimer, more than 500, that's another three points, okay? So the top score is 14 without D-dimer or 17 with a D-dimer. So key points here. No CTV had a D-dimer less than 500. A score of 9 to 17 with a D-dimer more than 500 had a positive predictive value of 100%. Okay, so you score highly and your D-dime is raised, very, very, very likely that you've got a thrombosis. No patient with a score of 0 to 2 and a D-dime less than 500 had CVT. The problem with this perhaps is that it needs to be validated. So this is on a fairly small cohort of people, but it may well help medics make a decision about whether to go straight for a um, CT venogram or MR venogram instead of a plain CT. Also, love them or hate them, as I've mentioned before, D-dimers seem to have a role here. And the D-dimer, it's like the comeback of the century for this blood test, isn't it? I love it. I love a D-dimer. Really back on track. I actually didn't realise they were so useful in um, CTV. Yes. That's that's really handy. I I mean, it's kind of obvious. I suppose if you've got a big clot, you know, you'd expect your D-dimer to be raised. But in, you know, sometimes these fairly young patients who haven't got any other reason for their D-dimer to be raised, if it is, we've got to be thinking about it. Yeah, that's useful. And it's not a diagnosis I feel hugely comfortable making. No, it's certainly of, not. The, the difficulty, bat. of course, comes in pregnancy, which I had recently. Somebody with a headache and you're thinking, oh, should you scan them or not? And um, very mm. difficult. Yeah. yeah. So, John, what have you got for us? Thanks, Barney. So I've got aspiration risk factors, microbiology and empiric antibiotics for 
patients hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia. This was published in Chess, July 2020. My new job is obviously influencing my reading. <laughs> Gram-negative antimicrobial cover for aspiration pneumonia is medical dogma that has been around for some time. What are consultants for, if not for doing the post-it ward round and asking, have we covered for anaerobes? Mm. But there is not a lot of very good evidence that tells us whether anaerobes are actually involved in causing aspiration pneumonia and whether prescribing antibiotics to cover for them is the right thing to do. Enter this secondary analysis of the GLIMP study, which was a big international point prevalence study of patients with a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. Of the 2,606 patients with CAP, 7.4% had a diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia. The prevalence of anaerobes isolated from the respiratory samples was basically the same whether you had aspiration pneumonia, which was 0.5%, a straightforward community-acquired pneumonia, 0.0%, or a community-acquired pneumonia with risk factors for aspiration pneumonia, 0.3%. There was, however, a higher rate of anaerobes in patients with a severe aspiration pneumonia. To prove the point about dogma, the authors showed that the majority of patients, over 50% in all groups, independent of aspiration risk factors or aspiration pneumonia, received specific or broad-spectrum anti-anaerobic coverage antibiotics. Basically, the take-home here is that there does not appear to be a higher prevalence of anaerobes in patients with aspiration pneumonia. So, feel free to reply to your post-take consultant that you've read uh, Marin Coral et al, July 2020, in CHEST, and the anaerobic cover for aspiration pneumonia is a thing of the past. You could also quote the IDSA and ATS guidelines for CAP, published in 2019, which now suggest only prescribing anaerobic cover if you suspect an empyema or an abscess. You can save the metronidazole for your next patient, who obviously is going to have an amoebic liver abscess. And also... I want to get in there that actually you often see people being prescribed things like Kermoxclav and metronidazole. And there is very rarely any point doing that because Kermoxclav really does have pretty good anaerobic cover. Yeah, I really like that study. I thought it was really useful and won't be prescribed metronidazole. You've be, I've seen it being done less and less over the years, actually. But now it's really good to have that sort of evidence just to show that it's really pointless in the majority of cases. Excellent. Yeah. Barney, you're, um, you've got another one for us. Uh, we're yeah. staying in the chest region. That's right, indeed, you lucky listeners. More respiratory for you. And this is one which actually came out in July, and it's the Ambulatory Management of Primary Spontaneous Pneumothorax, an open-label, randomised controlled trial. And it was released in The Lancet. So, primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. By that, I mean a pneumothorax which arises in an otherwise normal lungs. So usually in young patients, and this is your classic tall, thin males, usually a smoker, they've received a flurry of attention over 2020. You may remember, listeners, that back in our January roundup, we discussed how doing nothing at all for these patients seemed better than sticking in a chest drain and then admitting them. This paper looked at the option of an ambulatory pathway. This is essentially where they inserted a little drain with a valve which patients can go home from, from the emergency department, and are followed up in clinic soon after. 236 patients were randomised one-to-one to either this ambulatory care, or following the UK's BTS guidelines, i.e. do nothing, aspirate, or chest drain, depending on the size and symptoms. At 30 days, the median time spent in hospital in the ambulatory group was zero days, compared to four days in the control group. That's some pretty big savings there. Both arms had adverse events, but the ambulatory care group had significantly more adverse events and all 14 serious adverse events 
were noted in this group too. Events included things like enlarging pneumothorax, problems with the drain, and asymptomatic pulmonary edema. So ambulatory care is not a perfect option, but despite having an increased risk of side effects, it seemed like a great option in the right cohort of sensible people who would come back in if there's an issue. Or like our January study showed, maybe you could just not intervene at all and the patients would fare better. Over to you, BTS guideline writers. Let's see what you decide. Exciting. Can't wait for those guidelines to come out. They'll be on my <laughs> desk. I'm reading a lot of guidelines at the moment. But I think this is interesting because there's, there's a few, now there's a few options for these primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. Yeah. Like in America, they tend to stick drains in pretty much everyone. Here, they are doing it less and less, but the guidance has been to aspirate for quite a while. But actually, probably intervening isn't the answer, is what it looks like, is what I'm getting the picture for. But yeah, we'll see when they put it all together. I feel like that is so often the answer. <laughs> Don't intervene. It certainly, is, it certainly is when I get called to do the chest drain. I think we should leave it. <laughs> Sats 80, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Don't worry about it. What is it? Oh, God. Uh, so hyponatremia is going to be next. And this is probably the diagnosis that in my brief career, I've probably seen the most so far. I do still have to look up the up-to-date flowchart and um, let it hold my hand through this sort of unbelievably complicated or seemingly complicated uh, diagnostic pathway. Are you an up-to-date flowchart? I think there could be like a... Sh- is there a fan page? Someone needs to make an Instagram page for the hyponatremia yeah. flowchart up to date. It's, it's so simple and yet so complicated. And when you haven't sort of had to go down the flowchart, you always have to revise it. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What I love about it is it often hinges on that very subjective, like are they euvolemic or very slightly dry? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> Anyways. Once you've snaked your way through the algorithm and made it to the box that says SIADH, that's Syndrome of Inappropriate ADH Secretion, you then get to implement the most unglamorous treatment intervention of all time, fluid restriction. Once you've scratched the surface of SIADH, you realize there isn't a huge amount of evidence over the appropriate method for correcting the sodium. Fluid restriction is first line, and some guidelines advocate for the addition of furosemide and oral sodium chloride as second line if you're struggling with the sodium. The furosemide is there to induce a naturesis and the oral sodium chloride to increase the renal water excretion. Some enterprising doctors in Thailand decided to do us all a favor and to run a randomized controlled trial on what the best strategy was to raise the sodium. They randomized patients with SIDH and a sodium less than 130 to either fluid restriction alone, fluid restriction plus furosemide, oral, or fluid restriction plus furosemide plus sodium chloride tablets of three grams per day. They managed to get 92 patients into the study. And any guesses on the most common causes of the SIDH, Barney? Lung cancer? Uh, Yeah, maybe. Uh, So it was malignancies were the most common cause, 51%, followed by drugs, 37 followed by neuropsychiatric disorders, 37 followed by pulmonary disease, 33%. So I hope you've brushed up on your hyponatremia for your exam, Barney. The results of the trial show that their sodium at day four was the same and all had increased by five millimoles. So no difference. And in addition, there was no significant difference in percentage, in percentage of patients or time to reach a sodium of greater than 130 or greater than or equal to 135 in the 20-day follow-up period. The trial was open-label and it's hard to make comments on the effectiveness of the treatment without thinking about what the underlying cause was. But it does seem to provide some evidence that there isn't much point in adding furosemide or sodium chloride tablets to the fluid restriction re- regime in the hope of improving the sodium faster or more effectively. 
this study is a very welcome addition to an area that doesn't really have a lot of evidence or data. Yeah, I think that's nice. I think that's good, isn't it? I think we, as you often see all sorts of things being done for it. Um, and as you say, fluid restriction just sounds so rubbish. <laughs> mm. I know one believes it works, but you know, but I think that's it. I think the fluid restriction works and the rest of them don't seem to make much difference. Yeah, and the fluid restriction, just to say, is 500 to 500 mils to 1,000 mils um, when they talk about fluid restriction here. Um, the classic, oh, 1.5 you know, litres in this tiny patient, which usually drinks about maximum a litre a day. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, what's what's incredibly unhelpful is all the jugs in all hospitals seem to be 750 mils. Yeah, yeah. But you can never say like one of these. You have to be like uh, one and a third of these you can drink. <laughs> well, maybe a cup of tea or two, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. They often yeah no, I've just drunk a jug of water, doctor. Oh yeah, and I had a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, um, some squash or whatever. You know, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Okay. I will I will crack on and I'm going to talk again about something which is related to respiratory, but not direct. So this is the association between oral corticosteroid births and severe adverse events, a nationwide population-based cohort study. And this was released in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So as medics, we can be pretty trigger happy with steroids. Okay, okay. Respiratory doctors are especially guilty. The slightest whiff of a wheeze and patients are given a moderate dose of prednisolone for five to seven days or much longer. We all know the dangers of long-term steroid use, but surprisingly little is known about the effect of frequent short bursts. This was a population-based study from Taiwan. Interestingly, 25% of the adult population had at least one course of steroids over the three-year study, which seems quite, quite a lot. These were compared with those who had no steroids and severe adverse events were noted, specifically GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure. The median dose and duration of steroids was actually pretty small at 10 milligrams and three days. That's five times less than the average UK COPD prescription. The incident rate ratios show that in the first 30 days after steroids, compared to having no steroids, you are 1.8 times more likely to have a GI bleed, 1.99 times more likely to have sepsis, and 2.37 times more likely to have acute heart failure. Rates of adverse events were much higher in the first month after treatment and then tapered slowly. Plenty of potential confounders here, such as maybe, just maybe, that wheeze was cardiac from the start. However, bursts of steroids are not benign. Think carefully about who who you're prescribing for and if they actually need it. Make sure they're not taking concurrent NSAIDs and think about PPIs as well, I would suggest. Yeah, that's really helpful. Steroids, not as harmful as we sometimes like to think. We like to give them out like sweeties and respiratory and neurology. On a side note, do you think that all cardiologists don't believe in cardiac wheeze and all respiratory doctors do believe in cardiac wheeze? (laughs) That would be an excellent study to look at. Nice. So, um, Moving a little bit away from the chest, we're going to talk about a study that I noticed in JAMA uh, called Effects of Candesartan versus Lisinopril on Neurocognitive Function in Older Adults with Executive Mild Cognitive Impairments. One of the holy grails of medicine is surely a drug that reduces cognitive decline and may prevent advancing dementia. I mean, what if that drug was a common antihypertensive that's already in wide circulation? Maybe it is. 
Studies have shown that controlling blood pressure may provide some cognitive protection. When specifically looking at angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs, it appears that there may be an effect on cognition that is independent on their effects on blood pressure. The theory revolves around two different angiotensin receptor types. This is the first time someone's mentioned those receptors, by the way, without saying the C word and then mass hysteria ensuing on Twitter. (laughs) Basically, angiotensin 1 promotes neurotoxic mechanisms such as oxidative stress, neuroinflammation, and cerebral hypoperfusion, and angiotensin 2 stimulation counteracts these mechanisms. ARBs selectively block angiotensin 1 and may offer superior protection than something like an ACE inhibitor, which will lower both angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2 receptors. So a little bit of a detour, but onto the study. The question is, does candesartan, which is an ARB, have a neuroprotected effect, which is independent of its blood pressure effect when compared to a different class, lisinopril, an ACE inhibitor? It's one of the first RCTs in this area and explores a really great question. Barney, you excited about this? I'm actually quite excited. Yeah, um, you've got me, got me on the edge of my seat, mate, yeah. on the edge of my comfortable sofa. So they randomized 176 patients with 141 completing the trial. Both groups had similar blood pressures at 12 months. So they had identical effects on blood pressure. So any cognitive effect will be independent of their blood pressure effects if there's a difference in the two groups. For cognitive function, the results were a little bit mixed. Candesartan patients did better at 12 months on the episodic memory test and one of the measures of executive function, the trail-making test. But the cognitive benefit was not seen across all the tests they did, and the Candesartan group didn't do better on other tests, such as the digit span or the Boston naming test or the examiner evaluation. The study also has some limitations. Namely, it has quite a small sample size and a high dropout rate. There were some baseline differences with the Candesartan group having fewer patients with a family history of dementia. And finally, I think the most important thing is that there's just a one-year follow-up period, and I don't think that's really enough for assessing a chronic condition like cognitive impairment and blood pressure. Okay. So hopeful, but you sound a bit sceptical. Yeah, I think the study is encouraging and shows that like maybe a signal towards being there being a superior neurocognitive outcome with candesartan versus lisinopril. But this work needs to be built on with a much larger trial with longer follow-up to be able to draw any kind of true conclusions. It's a good effort though, and hopefully paves the way for future studies. Yeah, sounds good. I think um, it'd be great. Basically, it's one of those studies like, wouldn't it be great if it was true, but it almost sounds too good to be true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so it just can't, it can't work because it just sounds too good. Okay, I will, I will crack on and move away from that area. And I will talk about this difficult problem of patients presenting with weight loss and what you do about it. So prioritizing primary care patients with unexpected weight loss for cancer investigation, diagnostic accuracy study, and this was released in the BMJ. So we've all seen it. A patient turns up to GP or secondary care with weight loss of unknown causes. Frequently, we investigate the head out of them. And we, it's actually, it's very variable. Sometimes we send them home and say, oh, don't worry about it, eat more. Other times, um, another doctor would get exactly the same case and CT every part of them, scope every part of them. And it's really difficult knowing who we should be investigating more for. The question is, who should we be scanning to look for occult cancer? And this study looks exactly for that. It was a retrospective look at 64,000 primary care attendances um, investigated for just this, weight loss of unknown cause. All in all, less than 3% of those attending with weight loss had a diagnosis of cancer. And this is actually below the, sort of the UK's threshold for investigating. So the yield is less than 3%. 
the recommendation is not to investigate. However, importantly, in male ever smokers aged more than 50, the prevalence was more than 3%. This was also true if they had any other signs suggestive of cancer, which I suppose is obvious. What's my take home point from this? If they present with weight loss, don't rush to book that whole body CT scan, plus or minus MRI and CT venogram and all the rest, unless either they've got some signs or symptoms which otherwise suggest they've got cancer, or consider it in males who have ever smoked over the age of 50. And I find this interesting because even since reading this paper, um, this has actually come up a couple of times where mm. we've got somebody who's got weight loss and I was like, I'm umming and ahhing about whether to treat. And I thought, well, actually, they're over 50. They're a smoker. We should probably, we should probably investigate with a scan. What counts as ever smoking? Cigarette in the smoking area on a night out or? Yeah, I think it's a significant pack year history, but I don't know exactly yeah. what it was. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Bonnie. That's helpful. Um, I'm going to detour to the world of contagious respiratory viruses. So flu season is around the corner, and I think it's fair to say we're all a bit nervous about what it's going to look like with a new kid on the block. However, our old friend influenza will also be around, and reducing the spread of its community transmission in households remains important. Baloxavir marboxil. Said that right, is a polymerase acidic protein endonuclease inhibitor that has shown some clinical efficacy in treatment of uncomplicated influenza. Basically, it's a decent antiviral for influenza. This study, published in the New England Journal, asked if it has a role in post exposure prophylaxis. This is a multi center, double blinded, placebo controlled trial in Japan where they randomized the household contacts of patients with confirmed influenza to receive either placebo or baloxavir. 374 patients got biloxivir and 375 got placebo. In the biloxivir group, there was a much lower rate of the development of clinical influenza confirmed by reverse transcriptase PCR over a 10-day period, 1.9% in the intervention group and 13.6% in the placebo group, with no difference seen in side effects. Funnily enough, uh, both groups had side effects reported at 20%. Um, don't know if that's commonly seen with placebo. Those placebos, they they can cause a horrible rash. Uh, Unfortunately, excluded from this trial are study populations that you'd quite like to see as they might be the ones that benefit from post-exposure prophylaxis, such as immunocompromised patients or pregnant women. Remarkably, all the index patients, so that's all the patients that were originally diagnosed with influenza whose household contacts were part of the trial and got the post-exposure prophylaxis. Does that make sense when I mean, say, index patients? Yeah. 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 So three quarters of those index patients were under the age of 12. All had already received an antiretroviral as per the Japanese guidelines. In the household contacts studied, 73% of the household contacts received baloxavir or placebo within 24 hours after symptom onset in their index patient. Wow. Imagine getting hold of an influenza household contact and getting them an antiviral within 24 hours. Our 10 billion pound track and trace system can barely track down a few punters who have a drink every night at the same pub. I'm really not sure that we'd be able to match this standard. So single dose biloxavir does show effective results for post-exposure prophylaxis in influenza. And it could be an option for household contacts of people with influenza but they didn't study high-risk groups and the study conditions do not really replicate real-life conditions. So I think further trials are awaited and this being a phase three trial, I'm sure we will see them. Yeah, 
And again, that would be interesting, won't it? It would be nice to have something in the armor apart from just wait and see and see how you go. And and also, I really hope that I mean, it's worth just drumming home the message that post-exposure prophylaxis may be useful for influenza, but the real prevention is um, vaccination. Just yeah. to get that Very before good. this article gets used by anti-vaxxers, it's like you know, it's fine. We've got this drug. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right. Moving on. Burnout, depression, career satisfaction, and work-life integration by physician, race, and ethnicity. And this was published in JAMA. So as you may be aware, listeners, recently there has been huge publicity regarding the amount of discrimination against BAME groups. That's Black, Asian, and ethnic minority groups. And their poor outcomes in health and differential attainment. This is a global phenomenon. The authors performed a large cross-sectional analysis of nearly 4,500 US doctors to examine the association between physician race and eth- or ethnicity and occupational burnout, depressive symptoms, career satisfaction, and work-life integration. Rates of burnout was highest in white physicians at 44.7%, then 41.7% in Asians, 38.5% in Blacks, and 37.4% in Hispanics. The adjusted odd ratio was significantly lower in black physicians at 0.49 compared to whites. Black physicians were more likely to report satisfaction with work-life integration. So what, what on earth does this mean? Whilst valiant attempts to control for confounders were made, you simply can't account for everything. Things like different roles, seniority, expectations, willingness to express their feelings on some form which somebody had just sent out to them, all these sorts of things may well have played a part. Or is it that because after a lifetime of discrimination, BAME doctors are better able to cope with the stresses of medic life? The truth is, we just don't know. But it doesn't stop this hugely complicated topic being quite fascinating with twists and turns all over the place. Mm doesn't reveal a huge amount as a study, but I suppose it's sort of, I think the, the discussion was quite interesting to read and it certainly highlights some interesting issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's a fascinating topic, which is so, so multifaceted and there's so many angles to look at it and it's far more complicated than anybody really realises. And um, yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think these sorts of studies just add to the growing well, confusion, but also the knowledge behind it. So, yeah, I find it interesting. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Barney. And um, I think that brings us to the end of our sort of slightly shorter journal spotting format with uh, purely the old journal bites being served up. I've enjoyed summarising things in a little bit more brevity this month. How have you found things, Barney? Yeah, I think there's always something for keeping it short and simple. So, John, should we do a rapid fire breakdown of the studies we discussed? Let's do it, Barney. You go first. Okay. Brain clot score, CTV is difficult to diagnose. This scoring system may well help. Metronidazole, only get it out for the chest if you're thinking empyema or abscess. Pneumothorax, the ambulatory care pathway works, but maybe doing nothing works just as well. SIDH, fluid restriction only. Don't bother with uh, sodium chloride or furosemide. Steroid bursts, just giving that short dose of steroids can potentially cause serious harm. So if the patient doesn't need it, don't give it to them. Suggestions that candesartan might have a neuroprotective effect. More studies needed. If your patient comes to you saying, I've lost weight, only scan them if they're age over 50 and a male and a smoker. 
or if they've got some other signs which suggest cancer based on that data. If you manage to track down the household contacts of an index patient with influenza, which is PCR positive, and you can get hold of them within 24 hours and you can get your pharmacy to get hold of some Biloxivir, then consider prescribing it because it might work. Brilliant. Burnout, depression, how much people enjoy work seems to be different for different ethnicities, but what this actually means, who knows? Lovely guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to our another episode. We will probably be back next month with a, um, our usual roundup, and we may have a couple of things in the meantime to keep you interested. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much, listeners. Have a great evening. You've been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia, animations expert Costa, and promotions team Abby and Isabel. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any feedback or questions, then get in touch. Journalspotting at gmail.com. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.